Welcome back, podcast listeners. We're here with episode 185, and I want to introduce today's guest who uh, Tony's got here today, which I'm really excited about, and, and he's going to be doing a lot of the interviewing. But today we have Janaya Winmar, who is a proud Noongar and Baladong woman from Kwaradong in the Wheat Belt region of Western Australia. She is an esteemed advocate and change maker who has dedicated her life to fighting for justice, sustainability, and the rights of Indigenous communities. Hailing from a background in rich Indigenous heritage, Janae's experience and upbringing have shaped her commitment to addressing the pressing issues of our time. Janae's journey has been marked with countless achievements and impactful moments. From organising grassroots campaigns to engaging with governments and corporations, she has consistently fought to ensure that the voices of Indigenous communities are heard and respected. Her tireless efforts have resulted in significant positive change, inspiring others to join the fight for an equitable future. In this thought-provoking episode, we'll explore the challenges Janae faces as an Indigenous leader, the strategies she employs to affect change, and the success stories that has emerged from her work. We'll also gain insights into the importance of education and allyship, as well as her vision for the future. Janae, I know that was long, but welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you. It is uh, great to have you here, Janae. We've been trying to organise this for a few months now. Between, uh, it's, it's, we're just both in the same city at the same time, so that's that's a great start. So, just a bit of background: we first met at the Nova Paris Statue Launch, and we had a really good chat there as well. So, um, which was, you know, a wonderful recognition of an amazing person who has done so much uh, for the community in whole, not just the Indigenous community as well. And from that, I thought uh, when I did some research on you, you would be a wonderful podcast guest uh, for our listeners as well. So welcome to our offices and thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me. No, absolute pleasure. Now, just can, can we just ask, I mean, you do have a famous uh, surname. Uh, in being in Winmar and especially the 30 year anniversary of what your uncle had actually gone through um, in racism in sport um, with when that game was well it wasn't just that game but I suppose over a lifetime in some ways but can you share with us a little bit about your background and actually what led you to become involved in your field of expertise? I think for me um, like Uncle Nicky was always a legend in um, that sporting aspect but, but for me it Sports developed my leadership skills, so um, I was always the tallest um, girl out there, and so I was never picked last. But um, being good at sport led me to being listened to at an early age. So the other other players in my team would seek advice, and um, so developing my leadership skills on an early level kind of. Um, led me to stepping into leadership in advocacy and um, speaking up for other other kids other um, businesses so it's kind of just kind of developed from there but I think it was recently looking back and going yeah I did actually develop those probably when I was 12 and then um, nurtured them throughout um, boarding school because I went away to boarding school was head girl um, at my boarding school and it just stemmed from there. I first travelled overseas in year 12. Um, not very many people held passports in my family. Um, so for me to go overseas at an early age, and just by chance it was New Zealand, um, through school um, led to kind of me having a passion for travelling in general. So, yeah, there's a lot of things that have kind of stemmed from there and that that leadership that Uncle Nicky showed on the field kind of um, transitions to a lot of Indigenous kids um, that's where they seek validation. They seek um, 
leadership skills, qualities and being good at stuff and being recognised for being good. So um, it's a huge platform that's an important role in our communities. It is and you know both Jamie and I, I'm an Essendon fan and, and Jamie's a Richmond fan and for the first time in the 10 years we've known each other we actually went to the Dreamtime game to G together. And it was, uh, and I was just very happy that for the first time in a very long time, Essendon actually won. But it is interesting that if you have a look at the round, and we're talking about Sir Doug Nichols uh, just prior to coming on to air, and and what he did in general, and just his everything that he did. So I did read the story where, when his family were advocate, advocating for for the AFL to induct him into the Hall of Fame, fame he was short on games numbers. But they actually said, well, I think we can do one better because of everything he did for the community in general. So people like yourself, people like your uncle, um, etc., they do look for, you know, they've actually opened up the path, I suppose, including yourself, for a whole range of young women and young boys to actually come through the ranks and be recognised as individuals for what they can actually do as well. Is that is that fair in saying that? Yeah, and I think I had the fortune of um, interviewing... Well, emceeing a Hockey Victoria event the other day that Annie Pam um, was a guest speaker on and um, Annie Pam Pedersen is the um, daughter of Sir Doug Nichols and um, Lady Gladys Nichols um, and just feeling inadequate when I'm in, in, her, in the presence of Annie Pam because she's still running 5Ks every day and her birthday's this weekend and she's 80 coming up and she sailed to Hobart um, probably like two, three years ago. So like all of this stuff that she's still doing to this day is phenomenal and to be like a presence that she is every year um, rocking up to Sir Doug Nichols round and being present for almost all the games that she can possibly be um, but also being the life of those um, events as well I think everyone that's ever met Anu Pam has kind of seen the influence and the impact that having those two amazing role models has has been on Anu Pam and giving her the platform to kind of grow into the person she is. Yeah, and, and amazing, amazing family. So, I mean, when when we, I suppose, when we're actually talking about that advocacy work for yourself, it's it has had a significant impact on the communities you work with. Do you want to share some of those experiences of what you've done, and you know, different types of advocacy for even through what you do as an employer, but also what you do as a staunch advocate uh, for everyone's rights, women's rights, Indigenous women's rights, and Indigenous rights in general. So. Uh, can you just share some of those real memorable moments that you have done as well? Yeah, I think um, it's one of those things that you don't actually look at until you ask the question of looking at them. So um, because I look the way I do, I'm kind of very visual. Um, I've got dark skin, I um, have the curly hair when they're, when it's out, so people can actually see um that I'm Indigenous as opposed to some other Indigenous people not being as visually Indigenous but as strong as in the advocacy space. So I think for me I've been going into boardrooms and spaces that um, there have been people that haven't looked like me at all. Um, so how do I get my voice heard and to not be the angry black woman or to harness those skills that I have had um, growing up to go how am I going to articulate myself in a way that people are going to be listening because like you can only impact the people that um, are willing to be impacted um, yeah. if people are there not for the right reasons your whatever you say is going to be 
um, either misinterpreted or twisted into a way that um, is better for them. So it's one of those things that I always go into a space going, how am I going to, how am I going to impact this person and leave the room with a positive influence on them meeting an Indigenous person? Because some people um, still to this day haven't sat down with an Indigenous person to have a conversation. So for me, um, that's my biggest thing when I go into spaces is how I'm going to leave that room um, and how they're going to remember me. Well, I remembered you because you're a very easy person to speak with. Uh, so, and you did introduce me to Leon Brooks, whose brother did punch me in the face a few times in the boxing <laughs> ring. Graham, so my father actually sponsored Graham when he was an up-and-coming boxer. So, so he, he was very, he was very kind to me. He could have been far worse. <laughs> so it's um, down in Jack Rennie's gym there. But the I think that's one of the keys is that you know, for example, you you found a Blackbone Sisterhood. Is that correct? Yeah. So I set up um, Blackbone Sisterhood. Um, the name represents like um, Aboriginal women being the backbones of our community. Mm. Um, pop, pop, my pop comes from seven sisters. So I've always had a strong um, Indigenous female presence in my life. Um, so for me, naming it that was kind of reflecting on what impact they've given me and um, listening and being nurtured in that, yeah, you can do anything. Like, I've always mm. been the one that go. That everyone's gone, you can do that, like, talk up for us and do all of that stuff. So that kind of advocacy for me has kind of been always there because I've been voluntold, I like to call it, um, <laughs> in, uh, into spaces. But for Blackbone Sisterhood, it was one of those things that I was working for an Indigenous business and... Um, I was getting asked to go and speak on panels and do various stuff, so I had to do a professional photo and a bio for the um, all the websites, all the uh, marketing material. So I didn't have a professional photo at the time, so I was digging through all of my nice Instagram photos and trying to find a nice, appropriate one. Um, and then I realised I, if I didn't have that, how many other women out there didn't have that or didn't have time? to create that so my first event um, was supported by EWA Ernest Young Um, so they opened up space for us to have an event there I had an indigenous makeup artist do all the women's makeup Um, Kinaway and um, the Aboriginal Economic Development Council also donated um, or paid for an extra artist because we had a lot of more women than we actually um, planned to, okay. to attend. So they were all like, yes, I want to come too. So we had an indigenous female photographer as well. So we had makeup done, photos taken, um, a lady that came in to talk about um, career paths and LinkedIn profiles. And um, so she was an indigenous business as well. And then um, because I was advertising it, I had um, a lady volunteer her time. So she was from a legal firm. I can't remember what the name of it is for the life of me now. But she um, donated her time and talked about intellectual property and what that looked like and how in Indigenous women were kind of not being used, but their um, responses and their opinions were being sought without uh, financial recognition or any of that. Um, so that conversation kind of took a longer um, period of time than we thought, but it was amazing for the girls to be um, interactive with each other. Um, we had a, fem- a female Indigenous catering company, um, Power Catering, which now also has opened a restaurant under the um, Melbourne Arts Centre. Um, so just along the Yarra. Yeah, I do, I do. I I have. I think waiting for. I think I might have actually been there with my wife. Actually waiting to see a show. 
So I, I, I do I do believe I know the one. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. They, that's when they first kind of started stepping into that space, and now they've got like a gin as well, and all sorts of other things that have stemmed from there. So um, creating that space, but also creating a network of women that kind of supported each other from then. So it's just kind of grown. Um, from that network other businesses have popped up I think from that room we had two indigenous business owners in the room I think now there was probably like 20 odd women in the room and half of them have businesses um, to this date so the growth of the female entrepreneurial system um, has grown um, from supporting each other on that journey going yeah you can do it like what do you need help with and um, we'll advertise for you or we'll share your stuff so I think that support network has been really impactful in that way. That actually leads me into you actually are a wonderful networker Uh, but it's if you have a look at some of the yeah, communities that have been very successful uh, in business in general over their decades uh, here in Australia, they do a lot of them work within their own communities. I mean, uh, the Vietnamese community when they first came here, the Greek community, the Jewish community in ways as well. So what you've done is actually by, it seems to be, by bringing a whole lot of you know wonderful women together to be able to all support each other uh, that by supporting each other, it actually goes out to, to the wider community and quite successfully uh, from from what you've actually done in bringing that together. But I'm sure you faced a lot of biases along the way. Would, would that be fair? Yeah, I mean, like, um, building that circular economy for us is, has been a struggle um, because when you start up an Indigenous business or just a business in general, like, um, to apply for tenders, you have to have two years' experience. But if you're a startup, you don't necessarily have that backing and how do you get that and where do you find that? And um, a lot of our Indigenous businesses that are female-owned um, don't have that background, but they're also doing it as a side 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 hustle okay. um, not just their main port of call so um, for them to kind of put effort into their business is isn't forefront of their minds that it's like um, yeah I'll get to that um, or I'll like someone about that so building that network to kind of um, keep everyone else accountable too so if you kind of go if you're falling down someone else is picking you up and um, I have started to practice lateral love on a lot of my social media networks. So LinkedIn. Can you explain that to me? So I, um, a lot of Indigenous businesses or business in general that I follow, um, I share and like and comment um, in a positive frame of mind. So we've we've seen there's a lot of lateral violence out there and um, especially racism online and all of that. So for me personally... That's even crept into LinkedIn. Yes, which yeah. are, which is very rare because I always looked at LinkedIn as being social media for good businesses and biz- and people in general. But I've noticed racism has really started to creep in um, on some of the comments there as well. Yeah, and I think anywhere there's a platform that people can have their opinion without having to speak it or having to speak it in front of someone that is they're going to offend um is going to be an easier space for them um and i think we've all seen like all the online negativity and like uncle stan grant is walking away from tv because um because of um racism in in all that social media so i think it's really important to see that how we're going to make those changes in the future because it is that accountability for those platforms that they do have 
a presence there and they need to kind of take into account that they need to control it a little bit more. And it has, I mean, Nova Paris, a good friend of both of ours, has, you know, given an example of what she's faced personally online, uh, where she actually took legal action against uh, who, a guy who owned his own chiropractic business in WA. And what was written on her Facebook post was just, was horrendous. Uh, and to actually think that that still goes on today is just, I mean, I, I suppose is that do people think, or from you know your experience, do people think that if it's typed online and they get likes online, that's you know they would say things that they wouldn't dare say to your face, but they you know or to my face or to Jamie's face, but but they basically say to you online and think it's okay because it's typed. Is, is that a general thought process that what you see? I think it's just easy because you don't have that accountability factor there at the moment, like half of the stuff that's advertised or half half of what's called out in social media at the moment isn't even the gist of it so you've got players who are getting racially vilified every week but some of them don't want to share it yeah um and don't want to put their hands up to say like they've been racially vilified and this is what's out there and so it's they just want to get on with doing what they do and what they pay to do um, and I think I explained it to someone the other day and went well if you were at your photocopier at work and someone started screaming at you in a derogative tone um, what would you do in your workplace mm. and they kind of had to think about it in a different format so being able to comment on someone's LinkedIn profile or Instagram post or Twitter um, in that negative tone because they don't actually have to face that person. So it's it's an easier avenue for them to to have lack of accountability or people aren't judging them for writing those comments because um, it's all kind of a secret platform. But at the end of the day, and I've been locked out of my um, accounts, um, you have to put in your phone number and your email address and have yourself verified in numerous different ways. So we have ways of finding those people. It's just, it's not there at the moment. Yeah, it's, I did have an experience from my 84-year-old mother once who sent me a message on Facebook and it was in all caps and I wrote back to her and said, why are you yelling at me? And she wrote back all in all caps, I'm not yelling at you. And I said, why do you keep using capital letters? She goes, I don't know. How do I turn it off? So, it was, um, but it was just like it was a kind of a nice message. But I was wondering why she actually put it in all caps and pretty strict. I mean, when my mum's angry at me, you know. So, it was, but it was I was I found that quite strange. But it was it was teaching an eighty-four-year-old uh, how to, to use capitals and all caps and not use it. So she wasn't yelling at me. Thankfully, this time uh, there's been others. So, if we're going to. I mean, let's, let's talk about the advancing, you know, Indigenous and women's rights in general, um, and especially Indigenous women that you do a lot of work with. What are some of those real success stories that you've seen, that you've been part of? Even, even I'd actually like you to share, you know, your own success story and what you're doing, you know, in business now in respect to things like that. Because I, 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 I really do think it's wonderful stories to be able to share out there because you're actually, you're bringing people up to actually be successful in their own right. But not, it's, you know, Australia has the tall poppy syndrome, of course, uh, we're renowned, worldwide renowned for it. But you're actually raising people up and actually to prosper, but never letting them go. You're part of a real community and a network as well. So what are some of those real success stories? And please also share what you're doing as well as part of that success story. Um, I think when, when I'm creating event spaces or creating um 
a space. I look at that procurement stuff. So we we um, look at the indigenous procurement ratios for um, each state and territory and. I think they're coming to be on par now. I think they were different at one stage, but the national rate is like 3%. And then we look at um, how much of is female Indigenous-owned businesses. And um, when I do something, it's always, uh, and it's just because I'm female and Indigenous, that the businesses that I think of are female-owned and operated. So I automatically list three. And then I think I had someone ask me for a recommendation of three of businesses in their health and wellbeing space and I just listed three Aboriginal women and I went, hang on a second, no, let me let me find some guys for you because I said that was just automatic for me and so they'd kind of laughed and I'm like, oh, but that's what's in my head because I'm giving space to that. So my first point of call is female-owned and operated and Indigenous-owned and operated. So it's, um, I have catering, I have... Um, event managers, I have a social media um, person that, and they're all Indigenous owned and operated that I kind of use on a on a network system so when I'm doing something they're the first people I call and go hey are you free on these dates because I've got this happening so I think that um, that networking and that growth for Indigenous businesses um, is really strong because they know or we've kind of created that ecosystem where we can all bounce off each other. It's kind of um, a really cool thing that when we're doing stuff, it's not closing the door on opportunities, it's opening the door. We um, allow the women to bring the kids into spaces because um, why not? Because they're going to be a part of that business. And um, so when I'm looking at those things, it's not... It's just a natural progression for me is going, how am I going to be inclusive but also supportive through that? And it, it is a lot of that lateral love that I talked about earlier is um, how am I supporting an Indigenous platform online because it's the thing we can do for free is like and comment on someone's Instagram page or Instagram business. So um, I'm always sharing stuff on there or tagging people in stuff that I think is appropriate for them. Um, and I think um, a lot of stuff I'm doing now, I'm stepping into that support for the entrepreneurial system. So I'm working with Dream Ventures, okay. um, Mindaroo Masterclass this year. Um, if you're in Perth, you can see me in Yagan Square because I'm actually on the billboard. Um, they sent it through this morning, um, which is a lot of me. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's one of those things that because... I've been an advocate for the program for so long because I went through the first one and I was sitting in a room with 20 other Indigenous business owners having conversation about business and how we kind of talk to investors and having that investor conversation. But for us, we had the luxury of pitching our ideas to Indigenous business owners that were in the other room, learning on how to be venture um, capitalists and mm. how to invest in business. So um, it was a really cool space to be in. And now you kind of jump into investment capital and um, not everyone looks like that room, but those conversations that we're having are there. So a lot of the um, conversation I'm having with um, Wade Institute at the moment have kind of reformatted some of their programming to be culturally inclusive or the wording um, that they're using is a little bit more tailored. And I think um, recently I've been a part of the trade mission to New Zealand for Indigenous businesses in Victoria so being able to talk to Maori business owners and Māori business structures and ecosystems like those networks and um, the trust 
boards that has been set up to kind of create space for that um, is completely different because we don't have that at the moment. We've just got Indigenous businesses supporting Indigenous businesses at the moment. So when we're talking about that next phase of what it looks like, it'll be setting up trust. We're setting up that ecosystem to look differently. So I think um, a lot of what I'm doing is knowledge gathering so I can kind of share and nurture that space in Australia at the moment. Yeah, I think that's it's wonderful that you're actually doing that. But it's when when we're actually, I suppose, looking at all this is you know the education awareness plays that real crucial role in creating change and to start with. And you know, I think of uh, my parents were uh, immigrants here, and but I think of growing up down in Mooney Ponds, you know, Victorian. It was, it was a good childhood, it really was. But how things have changed for um, in respect to the Indigenous communities and how uh, you are treated uh, now compared to, say, I was born in so say in the 70s, because that's all I can know about, but also to how women are treated far more fairly today. We're still nowhere near um, equality as far, or even diversity, as far as I'm concerned, but things have moved forward. So from that education, what do you believe is really crucial in helping people understand that, you know, you might be an indigenous-led business, but you're you're a led business that has amazing qualities that should be employed based on the fact of that you're just really great at what you do yeah. um, as well. So, how do how do you get that education out there to the community in general? It's pretty much just sharing and. Um creating that networking it's it's building that rapport because it is like in business everything's like you are going to buy something from someone you like you go to your same coffee shop because you have an amazing customer service like and trust um so it's it's how do you build that without having that background um so it's for me i think i've been fortunate i grew up in a small country town i still have friends that i went to kindy with so we were four year olds um and every year um my one of my best friends is the farmer he's moved back to town um and he's kind of buying a lot of the farm around him um so he's turning into a farming mogul but for me i jump on the harvester with him every year um and that's like our time uh, about two hours around and around in circles um I don't know how he does it. He doesn't know how I live in the city in the concrete jungle. But um, that's our check-in for the for the year and we do that catch-up. So me talking about business to him and him talking about farming business has been one of those things that um, has kind of flipped my, my script because I'm, I'm thinking about things like... Um, the price of canola and what that looks like and um he was calling it black gold and i'm like but why and um being able to do those conversations when i jump back on on in my farm space um but then how do i kind of impact that into indigenous businesses and stuff like that so it's for me it's i've kind of had a network of amazing people throughout um, my developmental years that I kind of didn't really not that I didn't have a lot of um, racism involved I had a lot of supporters and allies through that process so a lot of my non-indigenous friends would speak up before I had a chance to speak up so um, my core people have kind of been there from day one but coming out into 
the bigger world and living in Melbourne and travelling and internationally doing stuff, I think noticing it and being able to call it out now because I've been supported in the right way. So it's been how do we communicate that in a way that it's bite-sized for everyone else and making them not feel... Making them not feel... um, conflicted because they are stepping from a space of privilege um, and it's that white fragility sometimes that you go into a space and you kind of call people out and it takes them a moment to go oh yeah but it's that oh yeah moment that sometimes doesn't happen straight away it might happen a week later a month later it's like how are you going to continue to nurture that relationship after calling all of that out especially in the racism space or um the IPP space for Indigenous procurement um, and those opportunities that might not go to Indigenous businesses or might go to JVs that aren't Indigenous, um, fully Indigenous owned and operated and how to so have fully Indigenous owned and operated is the important part yeah. of that, yeah. Yeah, so it's like those conversations and calling out and using spaces like Kinaway and Supply Nation for the right reasons and the validation of those businesses and um, having that conversation in the right way because calling it out is is the important thing but education of why you're calling it out um, is very impactful. It's interesting using the word uh, privilege and biases and I was having a, that's a while ago now but having a really good conversation with um, one of my work colleagues Lucy and I said it's actually interesting, and especially because of my, you know, Maria, Maria Delopoulos, one of my closest friends, and, and you know, getting to learn from Maria uh, from that aspect. But I sometimes think that you don't necessarily realise that you've necessarily had privilege or you've had or you have certain biases until you're actually being made aware of it in a way that is like, I never thought of that. So I grew up in a household uh, where my parents are two completely contrastingly different religions, uh, two completely contrasting different backgrounds. I mean, it, statistically, they're not meant to be together, you know, so it's um, they came out here as immigrants, you know, very, very loving, successful household and marriage and uh, up until when my father passed. And it was, it was just that case of that you grew up in this and you don't necessarily know, you don't, might not necessarily think of yourself as being racist until you think of something and say, well, I actually never thought that, of, that I might have had that bias as well. And I sometimes think is the, way, the way somebody can talk to yourself, Janaya, is totally no conflict whatsoever. And you speak to you for 10 minutes and you're like a, you know, a, a friend for the last three decades that you have an open conversation with. So it's easy to think things through. When, but probably over the last 10 years, I've noticed there seems to be this real conflict of, no, this is what my group think. So anyone who speaks against them, even if I don't necessarily fully agree with it, you know, there again. So there seems to be moving forward this sort of conflict where people know I'm on this side or I'm on this side and they're not open to actually having these real conversations to be able to understand, oh, that makes sense. I never thought of it that way. You know, where the, the conflict... Maybe I, I blame social media a lot. So conflict over social media, that's my... Being 54, that's me picking on social media. But yeah, I, I sometimes think that is the case where people aren't open to to their own biases because they get continually get fed their own biases in a lot of way too. So is, I mean, 
Am I just am I speaking rubbish? What are your thoughts on that? So I think people have that fear of the unknown. So if they don't know, um, if they have, don't know any Indigenous people, like mm. that, what they see in social media, what they see on the news is that, um, and Aboriginal people have been spoken about in a negative deficit for years on social media. So when we kind of really, really go back into, I think the stolen wages stuff from. Um, the, in Queensland, so when they looked at you, look at that and you dig deep into that. Um, farmers were able to say Aboriginal people didn't were, were lazy and didn't work, so they just didn't have to pay them, and they moved them to another farm and um, and told the other farmers that that's what you can do. You can get them to work for a period of time and then get them to leave. So that a lot of people don't know that history about the stolen wages, yeah. and it was also immigrants that were brought in from overseas as well that suffered uh, through that too. Yeah, and um, like it, I mean, I'm, I'm talking more your Indigenous immigrants that were brought in from overseas. Yeah. Um, and that was still going on like in the 70s and 80s. Yeah. Yeah, so it's not as if it was just back in the 20s or 30s. Yeah, and a lot of the colonial wars in um, Sydney predominantly, um, the Irish fought with the Aboriginal people and that's documented on um, in our record books but it was hidden from our history. So I think um, the English did an amazing job of documenting everything. So it's there now that we can come back and go and go, hey, look, no, this really happened. You actually did write it down. Um, <laughs> so, so I think so. it was a good thing that it was documented, not yeah. that it happened, but yeah. it's that accountability again, right? So um, that's why working that reconciliation action space, um, a lot of businesses have reconciliation action plans. It's that visual accountability and keeping them on on track with that so um yeah when we look at kind of talking about in that deficit like changing that terminology um even i've kind of started to practice not talking about stuff in a negative deficit anymore like instead of saying apologizing for running late thanking people for holding space or waiting for me or um or changing times um so for me personally that's been a big switch in conversation piece that i have and changing my dialogue um into that positive um tone but it is it's a it's one of those things that we've kind of had that for so many years and um people with that bias mentality um if they aren't questioned about it they're going to continue along um i will assisted with a reconciliation action plan and and um the ceo kind of went we've been known for being racist how do we fix that i'm like well um acknowledging it is a big key so congratulations and so it's having that ability to to and i've got thick skin of been we've been around the industry for so many years but it's being able to kind of not be too confronted with that when it happens um like i grew up um doing public speaking for years being a head girl at my boarding school so um i speak well um so when i go into spaces they went oh you speak really well for an aboriginal person i'm like awesome how many aboriginal people do you know and they kind of go, oh, um, uh, so they don't know very many Aboriginal yes, people. Yeah. So for me, it's one of those things that um, is also, I had a non-Indigenous manager who we won work within the central desert. So them ringing up to kind of say, this is the times that we're available to have conversation with you. But speaking very little English and speaking pidgin English and broken English, 
Um, so I was on the phone with them having a pidgin English conversation and I said to my manager, oh, they want to talk to you now. And he's go, he panicked and the fear of his eyes um, was like, I can't speak like that. And I'm like, you don't have to. I just choose to because I'm making everyone else feel comfortable. Yeah. And yeah. he kind of went, oh, okay. And then he got off the phone and he goes, oh, that was all right. That wasn't so bad. Um, so now he, he's kind of changed his personality because being able to go into communities and do those type of programs that he did um, changed his mindset because that fear of not knowing was his thing. So it can either make or break that situation and if he didn't have someone like me that helped support him through that, then it probably wouldn't have been a, such a positive transformation. So I, I think, yeah, when we talk about education and how to do that education um, and being able to deliver it in a way that's bite-sized for everyone yeah. is really important. From the Aboriginal male perspective, um, a lot of Aboriginal males are known through sport, um, you know, whether it be uh, Paddy Mills or, you know, even Timmy Duggan. Um, but the, of course, Anthony Mundine, you've got, um, you know, the, my, the first Aboriginal person, uh, man that I ever met, Graham Brooks. Um, you know, so he was, it was great as a young 14-year-old. He was very nice to me in the ring as the, as the world... Uh, Flyweight or lightweight champion, um, and you know he, his father and my father were good friends and knew each other very well. And you know Graham was actually good. He he was very kind to me and taught me to box and made me feel better than I actually was. You know he would have been eighteen or nineteen. I think I was fourteen. He still sends me a, a birthday wish, you know, every year as well, which is lovely. Um, I've never called him Porky though, so because his nickname Graham Porky Brooks, I just happily call him Graham. <laughs> so it's um, but. It's your first exposure, and a lot of these people, uh, or a lot of people, are exposed uh, to the Aboriginal community uh, through males in sport, but never actually, as you said, have actually stopped to speak with, or actually met, or actually just, you know, had a general conversation in passing with. And I know even my eldest son at the Nova Paris launch came down, and Nathan Lovett Murray was there. And Josh, two favourite players at Essendon were Nathan Lovett Murray and Orwin Davey. Yeah. Um, so he just loves watching you know, Orwin's uh, boys run around now. Yeah. But he was uh, chatting to Nathan Lovett Murray and he said to me afterwards, he's so softly spoken. He's just, in a, because on the football field, he was feared. And running off that halfback flank, he was, he was a great player. And he was, he was, it was, it was, it was Josh goes, he's just so nice. He's so softly spoken. I actually thought him to be, he was going to be a bit more you know, energetic and out there. And I said, no, he's always, Nathan's always been quiet, yeah. you know, from that aspect as well. So is it is it a case of the people see these sporting heroes, but don't necessarily understand what they're like in life in general? Because we all have lives outside of sport or the TV and things like that as well. Yeah, and I think, um, so from me starting to work in the AFL, um, a few years ago now, I think it was six, seven years ago, um, working in the space where a lot of that wasn't communicated through. There was, mm. like, we've had Indigenous round, Indigenous players play every year. Now we're starting to get artwork, but then also players are kind of sharing that journey. So they're getting to be creating those own art pieces and um, telling their stories through that artwork and, and playing active roles within educating not just... Um, the general public but their own like mm. playing group and sharing their stories through um, continual conversations taking people out to country I know um, the Fremantle boys it, um, 
the Indigenous boys used to go fishing or go away for camps um, on weekends. That way they had um, buys or off-season just to kind of touch base with each other. It's building that life after footy, so how, what are they going to do? Um, and I always say to them, you're one injury away from the rest of your life, what are you doing with yourself? So um, it's good that like when we have those boys stepping not just into the business space but step into education or what that looks like. I think Eddie Betts has just launched his foundation as well. So um, going from a kid from Sejuna not doing so well at school to right. writing books and setting up a foundation and kind of flipping that education um, narrative um, in a completely different manner. So it's how do we, how do we navigate that space and give them the space to do that and support that so I think um, when we were talking about networking and business growth um, earlier it's supporting those boys to have that journey and like a lot of clubs are doing that now like they've got player welfare officers that are mm. that are out there they've got each boys yeah, yeah, Nathan's there, Kilda, and, yeah, so, and you've yeah. got like Leon Davis at Collingwood. Yeah. Like, so you've got past players that have experienced all of the highs, lows, roundabouts. Even Paddy um, Ryder back at Essendon yeah. now. So I was chatting to Paddy at the AFL launch. Yeah. He's a great senior back at Essendon. Yeah, so, yeah. and I think that's really important that um, giving those boys opportunities to share their stories um, to those coming along. Like um, the Davies boys will have a completely different journey because they've seen Dad do it and then go away and do it themselves and now they've got like younger brothers and sisters that are also going to be stepping into that journey too so um, that education piece is really important I think um, what Uncle Michael Long did um, having that conversation because while I was working at the AFL finding out the background of what the AFL did because he didn't turn up for work one day and they went oh where is he so finding out before mobile phones yes. um, <laughs> where he was and what happened so um to communicate that but also the support he was given to kind of go on that journey and I think we talk about like the long walkers and the people that helped him through that process like everyone just jumped on board and went how do we support you yeah um and now like what is it 19 years later they're still doing um, a walk in some form so and Michael was still my mother's favorite Essendon <laughs> player <laughs> so especially she she loves him for the 1993 grand final win was the only grand final I ever got to take her to but she um she still thinks Michael is just the greatest thing on earth. As I said to you earlier, she still says he had at least 15 bounces when he kicked that goal. <laughs> that still Barney did not touch under any circumstances. <laughs> and she would argue with anyone over that. So it's, uh, he's a wonderful guy. Can I ask, uh, Janae, your then thought process on reconciliation, on moving forward, on acceptance, on you know trying to eradicate biases in society, uh, about the voice and what your thought process is, your personal uh, thought process is, uh, if you can share in regards to the voice and moving forward? Yeah, well, recently I was in Canberra with the... Um Human Rights Commission. So they yeah. Sorry, can I just yeah. preference that? First of all, do governments understand what you're talking about with biases and businesses and things like that? And then secondly, uh, the voice, how could that support, I suppose, what I'm trying to get at? Yeah, I think they're starting, they're starting to have that conversation. I think um, Annie June Oscar, which is the United Nations Indigenous um, Ambassador, Commissioner for Australia um, had done a report on um, 
Indigenous female voices across the country. So the national summit that was held in Canberra the other week had over 900 Indigenous women from all across Australia. Um, but that process of kind of creating that report like took two, three years to kind of get out to communities, to translate it, to translate it back, to put it into government context, to have a report, to submit not just to Australia but to the United Nations in, um, in America and uh, how to do that engagement better with Aboriginal women and, and youth and, um, and that impact. So being in the room with over 900 Aboriginal women that are leaders in their own communities um, was a really um, moving moment because you, you kind of realise there's a change happening. Like, it's those voices are being heard. We had um, Annie Linda Burney um, come out and have that conversation and present to the group about what the, the voice would look like and um, how that document would also be impacting that engagement piece and um, because getting it right for Aboriginal women gets it right for everyone else because Aboriginal women communicate that through their family groups because they're the ones that um, predominantly are the carers and the educators for those young ones coming along so um, getting it right in that format kind of leads it through to there and I mean I just pretty much tell everyone educate yourselves on what that looks like so there's probably arguments for and against the voice um, but in Victoria we've got the treaty process happening in South Australia they've also done it and so all these other states are leading that way so when you look at it Australia has over 250 different Aboriginal nations and how do we have one voice for all of those nations Yeah. Um, and how do we kind of communicate that and I think that report that Nani June Oscar did kind of created that blueprint to have the dialogue within those communities and kind of share that process through. I mean, like everything, we're going to miss bits and pieces of it, but having a voice in Parliament that's going to be um, a standalone one that's not going to change with different um, political parties being represented in there, so it's going to, it's going to stay as its own um, entity regardless of whether Labor are in or Liberal are in, it's going to be still there. So it just a matter of what that looks like and who's in charge of it. Um, so I think, yeah, it's reading all the information because I'm still reading through all of that stuff. I know we got extra stuff when we were in Canberra the other week and I still haven't read it, but it's um, coming down to that voice and how do we communicate that voice through to it. And I think um, a lot of the people that are in against the voice in Parliament are those that don't like that fear factor that I was talking about earlier like they don't they don't know what's involved in it like are they going to be taking land back from us like do we have to okay. give this back and so it's that fear of the unknown that um, everyone has like um, there's a lot of people that are going well who's going to be our voice continually like how are we going to communicate that up? And so they don't know that process because that, they haven't been shared that. So yeah. I know that um, a lot of the voice conversations are starting to happen in communities and you can kind of approach them to have them. And um, if you've got a business out there that you want to know more, reach out to them because they're more than happy to come into your workplace and have that lunch and learn session. I know they've had that for a lot of different businesses now. So inviting them into spaces that 
everyone's in um, is probably one of those biggest things to kind of communicate that story but also looking at both sides no, absolutely so thank you for sharing your opinion on that too so it's um uh so looking ahead basically what are your aspirations and goals for the future for your work and what you're doing and what you would like to see as well yeah i've was um actually thinking about this the other day because i um sat down accidentally with uncle michael long's wife who is an amazing aboriginal woman um and she always makes you accountable for what you're doing so she's like what are you doing next what do you want to do what and likes you a million questions because she's a teacher also um so sitting down and kind of going okay i don't know what i want to do um so i've got like a cleaning company at the moment so we've got um a lot of commercial contracts um, so quite a successful cleaning company yeah, yeah yeah so um the workforce, I think, um, for me, is that next growth of that, what that looks like. We've got a um, large JV that we're stepping into at the moment, so it's kind of having that conversation about what that looks like and that accountability and um, not losing that Indigenous voice and, um, and diluting what that looks like um, and strongly. So um, that's the process that we're going through at the moment. But then looking at the next phases of Blackburn Sisterhood, what that, um, being able to step away from that business and not be the forefront of it and giving other people opportunities to step into that. So I'm in the process of kind of trying to halter some of the stuff that I'm doing so I can get that platform right. Um, and I met an amazing uh, Mary woman who's got a platform that's pretty much tailored to um, Mary women um, and like all the t- wording is in Maori and so we're in the process of translating that and being able to use that for um, Aboriginal women in my network and what that looks like. So I've got a um, funding grant from Indigenous Businesses Australia to do Mm -hmm. a national program at the moment so I've got that approval on Friday so I'm in the process of figuring out what that looks like and how to deliver it so um, the logistics of that will be fun in the next few weeks um, in between all of my spare time. I was going to say so you actually don't sleep do you? You don't have any spare time at all? No no in between saying yes to a lot of these other things um, extracurricular things like I play hockey tonight um, so play Masters Vets still. Um, I sometimes play normal hockey on the weekends um i try not to because they keep putting me in the second side and i'm not fit enough to be in the second side anymore (laughs) um so there's a lot of things that um i still want to do socially but i don't have time to do anymore Uh, i did the emceeing on the weekend for the Dreamtime game um and was exhausted on sunday so i pretty much just caught up for lunch with friends that were up from shepparton um because they went to the game on Sunday, the Carlton and Collingwood, Collingwood game. game yeah. So it was a lot of a lot of football and a lot of family in town. Um, heaps of people from Perth that flew in for Dreamtime. So um, I think, yeah, trying to find time to have time out um, will be my my biggest passion over the next month or so. But it won't look the way I think it would look. Yeah. So, first of all, I just want to sincerely thank you for coming in. As I said, we've been trying to organise this for a while. Uh, but really, the work you've do, done as both an entrepreneur in your own right, but also for Indigenous and women's rights and the rights of everyone 
to have a voice and actually be heard is just been exceptional. I've been following you ever since I met you. Uh, so it's the state uh, LinkedIn, uh, just basically watching everything you do. Um, and it's been really, really inspirational. So as a guest here, we're honoured to have you. Thank you so much. And thank you for or from all our listeners as well. Thank you for having me. Coffin Bond Podcast is a product from Coffin Bond & Co, which we are an authorised representative of Gown Financial. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal or tax advice. The hosts of the Coffin Bond Podcast are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Before making any financial decision, you should read the product disclosure statement and if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from the podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Kofkin Bond website, or you can find resources on the ASIC website and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Kofkin Bond & Co. and the hosts of the Kofkin Bond podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of the country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today.